All right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see y'all this morning. Glad y'all, glad y'all are able to join us. Robert, while you're at, would you mind getting a door for us, please? Thank you. Richard, could you get that one? Thank you very much, guys. It's our shepherds leading by example. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, oh, that's... Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Katie. All right. Uh, for those of you who um, were in service, it's quite the announcement there at the end. <laughs> uh, Stephen Stephen told me earlier that um, Stephen told me earlier that if I had called him this week to want to go to lunch, he was not going to take it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, definitely be praying for. Uh, Mark and Carolina and family, for Justin and Logan and family, and uh, yeah, it makes makes sense, right? If uh, if COVID has shown us one thing, it's the importance of being being close to loved ones. So yeah, so let's open up with a word of prayer for them, and uh, then we will get into our class exploring our strange Bible, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that here in just a second. So let's open up the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another beautiful day. We thank you, Lord, for another wonderful Sunday where we can gather together with our brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement we had in our songs, for the challenge that Mark gave us in his sermon, for, uh, for Justin's uh, convicting communion devotional, that we believe, challenging us to, to believe in you, to, to trust in you, and to love you. Lord, we are also uh, heavy-hearted because transition is uh, is is often difficult, especially transitions uh, from loved ones and when loved ones move away. So, Father, we lift up to you uh, the Adamses and the Campbells. We pray that you will bless them in their new works. We pray, Lord, that you will bless us that you will give us, the, um, give us the energy and the motivation and the determination to continue doing the good things that you have called us to do. Lord, we thank you so much for your spirit. And we thank you, Father, that you have already given us the strength to do what you've called us to do. In that spirit, in that mindset, with that heart, Lord, we will move forward, praising your name for the good things that you have done for us through your servants. And Lord, may this be an opportunity for us to continue to grow, for us to continue to grow in Christ-likeness, for us to continue to grow in our fidelity and allegiance, in our faithfulness to you. We ask that you will forgive us of our sins. Pray, God, that you will help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear what we need to see and hear today. 
And Lord, we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right. If you want to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, that is where we're going to, that's where we're going to start off this morning. Uh, for those who are new or have uh, maybe missed a week or so, this class is entitled Exploring Our Strange Bible. Uh, one of the things that you will notice if you read, start reading the Bible all the way through is, man, there's some weird stuff in here. There's some strange things. And uh, some of the strangeness doesn't just stop with what is in the Bible. Some of it happens, well, with how we actually got this collection of books. And so I want to, uh, I want to tell you that our title for today's lesson is The Bible Didn't Fall Out of the Sky, Part 1. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have Part 2 next week. The Bible Didn't Fall Out of the Sky. We'll get to Deuteronomy 18 in just a second, okay? I just wanted you to have that there. Let me ask this question. When we use the phrase, the Old Testament canon, okay, Old Testament canon, what does the word canon mean? Writing, okay. Yeah, an agreed collection of stories, as opposed to maybe some that uh, don't quite fit. Randall? Ah, yeah. Randall, I'm not surprised that you would give us a good historical answer like that. That feels right. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, so Randall had mentioned that uh, the, the word has roots in this notion of uh, something like a cane or, or a measuring rod, right? Something that kind of fits. Jamie's, um, <clears throat> Jamie's answer was, uh, was pretty interesting. Okay, show of hands, do we have any Star Wars fans in here? Okay, all right. So... There's a lot of discussion, right, about what counts as Star Wars canon. You've got the movies, but there's, did you also know that there are tons of books written and comic books and video games? And there's all kinds of questions about you know, what is canon. Well, if George Lucas said it was canon, then it counted. But George Lucas doesn't work for Lucasfilm anymore, and that is a shame. But <laughs> there is, yeah, that's an example of the kinds of things that we might have questions about. A canon here is really, when we talk about the Old Testament canon, it's something like an exclusive list of books. Exclusive, right? Okay, so does exclusive mean anything and everything? No. It's exclusive. Some things are in, and some things did not make it in. So an exclusive list of books, or like what Jamie was saying, an authoritative collection. All right, keep that in mind. Next question. Who wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. Moses. Okay, all right, Moses. When anybody hears the word Moses in church, do you start singing Moses, supposes? Is toses or roses? Nobody knows where that's from. All right, we need to work on um, we need to work on our old musicals. I'm not going to give you any hints, okay? There's part three. Yeah, there's part three, yeah. <laughs> Jerry's asking if there's part three. Moses uh, Ridge, yes, sir. Man, Ridge, did you look at my notes? Uh, and, sorry. <laughs> 
All right, a couple of other questions just before we get to uh, what, uh, what Ridge has prompted me for. What, uh, there are a couple of names that we call the first five books of the Bible. Somebody give me one of those. I heard, okay, I heard both of them. Pentateuch, right? Pentateuch and Torah. Very good. Uh, and qu- quick question, uh, where does, what language does the word Torah come from? Hebrew. Hebrew. Very good, guys. Very good. Okay, so and uh, what does Torah mean? Generally law, right? Has anybody heard anything else? It's, it is holy, yeah. Sounds like something that uh, classic Robin might say. Holy, holy Torah, Batman. Yeah. Um, something like law or instruction, right? Law or instruction. Okay. Ridge asked this question. Y'all might not have heard him. The air conditioner is, is on, so it, it, it can be a little hard to hear sometimes. Uh, everyone is welcome to move up if they'd like. <laughs> I've been teaching Bible classes long enough to know that that's not going to happen. Um, <clears throat> did Moses write every word in the Torah? Randall. Weird. Perhaps not. I've heard some people try to wiggle their way around that by saying that, well, Moses was a prophet. I, I don't think that prophecy normally works that way. Anyway, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. If somebody has verse 15 for us, please, will you read that uh, nice and loud? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Okay. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet from among your own kin, a prophet like me. That's Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. A prophet like Moses will arise. Let's turn to the very end of Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. You may turn or type. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. And I'll read these for us because I, uh, I want us to make sure that everybody can hear this nice and loud. Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 10. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. And for all the mighty deeds and the terrifying displays of power that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. Now that's how the book ends. But here's something that I want you to notice that you might not be aware of. Let's take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 6. Verse 5, actually, verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. To this day. You ever notice that? To this day? 
They literally just buried him. Or did they? Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Skip verse 9. And then we're back at verse 10, right? And there has not arisen a prophet in Israel since Moses. All right, if you just read this straight through, Moses dies, they weep for him for how long? 30 days. And then the last three verses of the Bible, of, the, of, the De- of Deuteronomy say, a prophet like Moses has not arisen. Do you mean to tell me that they waited a month and said, oh man, a prophet like Moses hasn't come? Okay, we're going to cap off Deuteronomy right here. That strains credulity, Let's put it politely, put it charitably like that. I don't think that immediately after Moses' death, I don't think they were rushing to finish this. I think a faithful Israelite or some faithful Israelites later were looking back after a much longer period of time And they recognized, wow, man, no prophet like Moses had arisen. So I'm not, if that is brand new information to you, that's fine. If you're a little hesitant to believe that, that's okay. But I think that that makes the most sense of what we have here. What made these first five books of the Bible so special to both Jews and early Christians. What do you think? What made these first five books of the Bible so special to Jews and uh, early Christians? Are they actually a chronological word rather than later books of the Bible, which are you know, put in hmm. order, but yeah. Jamie has asked if these are in chronological order. I think, I think the story tracks chronologically from Genesis 1 through Deuteronomy 34. They, and because of their content, they definitely merit being placed at the beginning, if that's what you were going for. Yeah, what makes these special? Why did, the, why did these have pride of place? Robert? It, well, on multiple levels, it begins to lay the foundation of who God is. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and it actually, in keeping with some of our thoughts this morning, it lays the foundation that God is with you mm-hmm. and He has a plan. Yes. Very good. So, Tells us who God is. Show us the kinds of things that God has done in the past. Really sets up a plan for what God is expecting to do in the future. Very much so. I think it's also. Uh, Ridge, go ahead. I was just going to say the Jews today, you know, they prayed for around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think to them, it sort of congeals, like Robert was saying, it sort of sets up their very special relationship with the Lord God. Yeah. And, and maintains that for them and identifies them as the chosen people. Yeah. Chosen to bring forth the Savior. Mm-hmm. Skip over that part. Yeah. It's inconvenient. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's inconvenient. I think 
as Israelites went through their history, okay, so let's uh, envision Moses' day and age over here, right? And we'll keep moving on towards when Jesus shows up. As Israelites got further and further away, they look back, it's like, man, you know, where is this prophet like Moses? Okay, where is this prophet like Moses? We have these writings from Moses. It says here, a prophet like me will arise. It doesn't seem like that's the case yet. And so however, whoever got a hold of Deuteronomy, whatever faithful Israelite got a hold of Deuteronomy right there at the end, they looked back and said, you know, a prophet like Moses just hasn't arisen yet. And they kept looking back and they thought, but goodness, you know, we've got all these people, all these, all these other people coming and oppressing us as we continue to move farther and farther away from the times of Moses, if we had just kept the law like God intended us to keep the law, then we wouldn't be in these problems. We wouldn't be under the thumb of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks. Hey, look, we're free for a second. Oh, we still can't keep the law. Here come the Romans, and now we're here at Jesus' time. And they were looking back at there and thinking, that writing... This collection, it tells us our story. It tells us who we are, who we should have been. It tells us how to live. These writings were authoritative. These writings were authoritative. No group just got together and said, all right, well, we've got all this stuff. Which ones do you like? Well, I think Genesis is pretty good. The Garden of Eden's pretty cool. Deuteronomy's got some great stuff in it. Hero Israel, I love that. That's not how it went. They were already looking back, consistently drawing from that material and thinking, this, this is the stuff that had we followed God, it would have been life-giving. Had we paid attention then, these things would have helped us. Keep that in mind. Next question. Who wrote the Psalms? David? Here are lots of names. Show of hands for David. Okay, yeah. Who did David write all of them? No. Okay. All right. Some other people wrote some Psalms, right? David wrote many. There are other authors of the Psalms. So what makes the songs these songs and poems, what makes these things authoritative? They're in the Bible, right? At some point, faithful Israelites looked at this collection of songs and poems and they thought, man, these, these speak to us in a way that is resonant with the words and teachings of Moses. These songs, these poems, these re reflections on life and the nature of humans and the nature of God, these things speak to us in a way that resonate with God's words in the Torah. What makes these songs and poems authoritative is either their source, was David just an average person or somebody specially selected by God? Okay, all right, the easy question, right? They come largely from David or from people who have some connection to the community. Or they are considered authoritative because they cohere with what we saw over here in the law. 
the Psalms, these reflections on life, these reflections on God's law, these reflections on the way that if we would just orient our lives according to Torah, God would sustain us. And when we fail to do so, if we will just repent, like Torah commands us, God will forgive us and be gracious to us. The songs, these poems, they were also considered authoritative for that same reason. And the same appears to be true for other books that form the Old Testament. Now, one of the frustrating things uh, about being any kind of historian is we just don't have perfect records. We just don't have perfect records. So we have very little information about how the process went for discerning how the Israelites discerned, all right, these books are authoritative. It is good and right and God-honoring for us to orient our lives according to what these things teach. These over here, not so much. We don't precisely know how that process went. But we can kind of draw some inferences based on what I have done with us this morning so far and based on some other things that we're going to look at. Turn with me to 1 Kings. And if you're a new Christian, don't be bashful. Feel free to look in the table of contents. That's okay. It comes after a book called 2 Samuel. And surprisingly or not, 1 Kings comes before 2 Kings. <laughs> so, you, so if you're having trouble in flipping through the 1 Kings chapter 14. 1 Kings chapter 14 I'll pull it up to chapter 14, verse 19. Verse 19. Now we're talking about the Old Testament canon, right? Israelites were writing other things. They weren't just writing what would come to be known as Deuteronomy or Joshua or Judges or Ruth or Psalms. They were writing other things. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now that word chronicles there it might be a little misleading. Really, the idea here is annals. These are other works. Skip on down, same chapter, skip down to verse 29. That was about Jeroboam. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Judah? Huh. Chapter 15, verse 7. Same book. Now the rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? What? Skip down. Chapter 15, verse 23. Now the rest of the acts of Asa, all his power, all that he did, and the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? And finally, verse 31. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written 
in the annals of the kings of Israel. These were official records of notable deeds, but they were not especially authoritative for displaying or generating covenant loyalty. And so as Israelites are kind of looking at all the things that they have and they begin reading these and they're faithfully seeking God, they're faithfully being loyal to covenant, as they are looking at all the works that the Israelites have produced before them, they begin to notice, man, these over here, these really draw us closer to God. These over here are consistent and faithful and they cohere with what we see. But these annals, they're good records, but they're not especially life-giving. There's something different about them. Jerry, did you have a question or comment? I thought I saw your hand go up. Maybe I just... Okay. Were you just blown away? Man, annals of the kings of Judah. That's good stuff. If If you have trouble going to sleep... There is fairly little written down about this process of canonization, the process of determining what books made it, what books were considered maybe useful but not especially inspired. That's a word that we tend to use. Uh, check, back within us, check back with us in about a month because we'll actually get to what inspiration means, okay? <laughs> That'll be another class, part, uh, part four, I guess. Yeah. In the period, remember when I was doing a little exercise, we were walking over here and it's like, oh no, the uh, Assyrians have us, now the Babylonians, now the Persians, now the Greeks. Hey, we're free! Okay, remember that period of Jewish independence? It's called the Hasmonean period. Has anybody heard of the word Maccabees before? Show of hands, Maccabees. Okay, if you've got a, like a, a print copy of a new revised standard version um, that has a collection of books called the Apocrypha, show of hands, have you heard the Apocrypha before? Okay. Uh, you might have something there called First and Second Maccabees. This is pretty good historical work. Shows us a little bit about how the um, how the Israelites lived and, and how they actually gained their independence. So that's that's pretty useful. So roughly around that time, roughly around that time, we really began to see some details about this process as faithful Israelites were looking back and saying, "We have all these we have these things like these annals of these these records from these kings." But we have these writings from prophets, and we have these writings from Moses, and we have these stories about Joshua and the judges and Ruth and all these other stories. We have all these things here. They find that in, in that period of independence, when they could kind of settle down a little bit in the land, that's when we really begin to see some details about how this process of the Old Testament canon being formed. Now roughly 150 years before Jesus' birth. Okay, Jesus is born uh, right sometime around zero. Uh, Depending on how you count it, it could be maybe 4 BC because of calendar issues. Anyway, so roughly 150 years before that, 150 years before Christ. Jesus, uh, the grandson the grandson of an important Jewish author named Yeshua ben Sirah. Uh, it's just ironic or uh, coincidental that his name is Yeshua because 
the, uh, Jesus' name in Aramaic also happens to be Yeshua. So it's kind of coincidental that these guys happen to have the same name. But this Jewish author named Yeshua ben Sirah, or his grandson, translated his father's work. Ben Sirah was, uh, was, a, was an important Jewish thinker. And he had written out a lot of reflections on the law and God's work and humanity and things like that. Not intending it for it to compete with you know, Isaiah or Ezekiel or Genesis or things along those lines, but something helpful, something devotional. Years later, his grandson translates his work from Hebrew into Greek. The Greeks had dominated that part of the world for a long time. And so listen to what he, uh, what he says here. This is in his Greek translation of this work called The Wisdom of Ben Sirah. Many great teachings, many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and others that followed them. And for these, we should praise Israel for instruction and wisdom. Now notice how many... How many small collections we have here? The law and the prophets and the others that followed them. Did you know that the Hebrew word to describe the Old Testament is Tanakh? Tanakh. Torah. All right, which books does the Torah? First five. This word, I won't give you the Hebrew word, it means prophets. This word means writings. Now, it's obvious what's in here, okay? This is obvious what's in here. What kinds of things do you think might be in the writings? Psalms. You might think of anything else? Proverbs. Proverbs. Randall, you got a you got an old testament back there, just kind of going through. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job. Okay. That's the stuff. That's the stuff in here. Listen to what that guy writing 150 years before Jesus was born, he said, We have you know, we can praise Israel for their law, the prophets, and the other things that followed. 150 years before Jesus' birth, these guys are already looking at this distinction of the Old Testament and they're realizing God has given us these collections. Right, show of hands. How many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. Was anybody here when those were discovered in 1948? <laughs> okay. I won't ask you to show your hand for that. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain numerous writings from that group that was there near the Dead Sea. And best archaeologists and historians can tell sometime around the year 70 A.D. All right, it's about 40 or so years, roughly 40 years after Jesus was crucified. Does anybody else know what major event in Israel's history happened in 70 A.D.? Destruction of the second temple. Destruction of the second temple. So Rome, Rome was tired. 
Rome was tired of Israel, tired of these backwater peasants and their weird hang-ups with their one God. So they said, okay, we're tired of it. We're tired of all the rebellions. We're tired of all the, the harassment. We're going to put an end to it. All right? So they destroyed the temple and began kind of systematically you know, hunting all the rebel groups. So right around 70 A.D., this group near the Dead Sea, sometimes called Qumran, you'll hear, see it spelled with a Q, Qumran, they hid all of their writings, their own special writings, in caves. Now their writings are actually kind of cool because they give us a window into how a lot of Jews, not just them, but how a lot of Jews were thinking at that time. And it's really fascinating to see them describe good and evil in terms of light and dark, something that the Gospel of John does. It's fascinating seeing them talk about Israel being a spiritual temple, something the Apostle Paul does. It's fascinating hearing them talk about what the Messiah is going to be like. Because in the eyes of most Jewish people, right, were they expecting a, a peace-loving Messiah or were they expecting, in Jesus' time, were they expecting a warrior king? Yeah. Maybe a warrior poet like William Wallace. Okay, that's what they were expecting. And in this group from the Dead Sea, we see that. It makes so much sense why Jesus had so much trouble because that idea was so popular. But we also know that in all the caves from this group, we have found every single book from our Old Testament except one. Does anybody know what is that one that we have not yet found in that group? It's Esther. What one book in the Old Testament does not mention the word God? Esther. Now that's why some people think it might not be in there. It might have gotten lost for whatever reason. You know, we, it, I, I don't want to argue from silence that they rejected Esther because it doesn't have the word God in there. Obviously God is at work in the story, right? Obviously God is at work in the story. Okay. So we can reasonably infer then. Uh, Randall. I, I think there is, yeah. Yeah. R Randall has um, given me something that will be an interesting footnote for this class if you want to come up and ask me afterwards <laughs> about some of this stuff. But we can reasonably infer that even though this group, which I think we can comfortably call sectarians, okay? I don't know if you know the word sectarian, a, re a religious or any kind of sect that, you know, if, if they believe that they're the only ones going to heaven, um, that is a sect. And so these folks in Qumran thought, the rest of you Jews who worship at that corrupt pagan temple, meaning the temple in Jerusalem, because they didn't like Herod, you're out. We're the true chosen. Some might call them the frozen chosen. But anyway, what we see in this process, and just kind of a whirlwind overview of how the process of canonization for the Old Testament occurred, we see a couple of things here, and we'll wrap up with this. When people, like some people will have some, uh, some criticisms about, well, we don't know, you know how this stuff happened. You know, this, you know, these books got picked 
because they didn't like other books and it was really shady and sketchy and we'll definitely see a lot of that kind of stuff at next week when we talk about how the New Testament got to be formed. There's a lot of messed up ideas floating around in sort of popular culture if you've ever read the Da Vinci Code or heard of the Da Vinci Code. I wish I could tell you that it was perfectly clear which, like how that process happened of which books were in the Old Testament and which ones weren't. But honestly, that'd be false. I'd be lying to you. But based on what we can tell, the believing community of Israelites gradually discerned which books followed the trajectory established by the authoritative teachings of Moses. They looked back and they thought, man, these things, they track. These things make sense. These later books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, books of Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, the prophets, they look back and they, they, these later works correctly understood the trajectory set by Moses. And they followed that. They followed that. And they eventually came to collect them in this collection that we now have called Torah, Navaim, Vakachuvim, the Tanakh. Hebrew word to describe the Hebrew Old Testament or sometimes the Hebrew Bible. I like what this one author says, and then I'll, I'll close with this quote and then one other thing that I think is important for us to, for us to know. If we ever begin to think, man, how did God work through history to get people to realize you know, this, this, read this one. Don't worry about this one. I like what this guy said. This, is, this guy's an Australian New Testament scholar, but I'm not going to try to do an Aussie accent for you. It is important to remember that a canon does not make the books authoritative. Rather, a canon formally recognizes what was informally known by the believing community. They were already reading, faithful Israelites were already reading these books. And as they began to look back, again, they, they saw what tracked with Moses on through the prophets. And they began to discern God's will is at work in this process. Now, I've dropped a lot of information at you, so let me bring it home with a little test case. It is comforting to me that Jesus and the early church also used and affirmed these books that we have called the Old Testament. So here's a quick list. I'll kind of roughly go, go through the New Testament. Here's a quick list of the Old Testament books that are either directly quoted from or there are very clear, strong allusions to these books. We have 39 books in our Old Testament. 32 of them are either directly quoted in the New Testament or have strong allusions to. So in the Gospels, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, 2 Samuel, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Zechariah. In the book of Acts, we also find 
Joel, Amos, Nehemiah, and Habakkuk. In Paul's letters, we also find Ecclesiastes, Malachi, 1 Kings, Job, Ezekiel, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings. We've got that on there twice. <laughs> Nahum. In Hebrews, we also have Haggai. James also alludes to Proverbs. Revelation also includes Zephaniah, the ones that are not quoted, the books from the Old Testament, that are either not quoted directly or not overtly alluded to, are these Judges, Ruth, Esther, Ezra, Obadiah, Song of Solomon, and Lamentations. And I've got that up here if you want to get that information. All right. Bottom line is this. That Old Testament. That clock is fast, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't folks getting clock-eyed around here. No, that clock is fast. Bottom line is the Old Testament. As long as that history is covering the beginning of time... We can kind of roughly date Abraham, maybe 15th century. Okay, so let's, let's just give us a nice good round number. We have about 2,000 or so years of stuff that we can fairly easily date in the Old Testament compared to the less than 100 years in which the New Testament occurs. There's a long time that spans all those books. And yet even then, these folks writing the books of the New Testament they quote from quote or allude to almost all of these. They knew these books. They used these books. They felt like they were authoritative. That gives us a bit of a challenge, too, to make sure we know and use the Old Testament as well. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it.